So we're getting further and further away from some of the spiritual heroes of the 20th century, and I get a little nervous that we forget them. <clears throat> and the first one that comes to mind is Mother Teresa. You know, Mother Teresa was the lady who, um, you know, gave her entire life to serving the poorest of people in Calcutta, India. And stories of her, of her humility are, are legendary, so much so that even her name has become a synonym for angelic. You know, well, I might not be Mother Teresa, but I've done a couple of good things in my day. Uh, Teresa led this very wildly successful uh, ministry to poverty called the uh, Missionaries of Charity that by her death had grown to some like 4,500 nuns in 133 different countries. Uh, the world was introduced to her uh, most vividly through a documentary that was made about her by the British journalist Malcolm Muggeridge. And Muggeridge was, th was thought to be the one who basically gave her the notoriety that allowed her eventually in 1979 to receive the Nobel Peace Prize for her work. But she also won other awards. One of the awards that she won was actually from the president of Venezuela in 1980, who decided to give her what was known as the Order of the Liberator on the 15th anniversary of the missionary uh, of charity founded in Caracas. So what he did was he threw this great big gala uh, he had a big celebration for her, flew her in on the presidential jet. Well, as the story goes, when President Campins uh, through the, the ceremony, he presented her with a gold medal. And he said this was a symbolic acknowledgement of the universal work of Mother Teresa for the poor, not just for the poor, but even for the poorest of the poor. An eyewitness who was at the event reported that after receiving the prize, Teresa slipped the medal into a small little satchel that she carried across her so shoulder. Well, as the evening went on, the dignitaries made their way to the dinner, dinner that was provided, except there was one problem. Mother Teresa was gone. Uh, Campins was sitting there trying to work through what was going on and suddenly realized that her absence was that she had sneaked out of the hall, thanked a couple of the hosts, so that she could actually go and have dinner at one of her missions. They found her hours later there eating a meal with the Caracas poor. Now, look, I don't know how those stories sort of set with you, but I think to myself, don't I wish that there's some aspect of that in my particular life? I mean, where do you get that kind of generosity of spirit that even when you look into what she does, you immediately are intimidated by it, aren't you? How could someone develop that kind of character to give that way to the totally undeserving poor? Well, we're closing in on the end of our study here through Genesis this semester where we're asking this question about what it is that frames the origins of the Christian view of life. And what we find this morning from Abram, by the way, his name's not yet been changed to Abraham, gets at the very heart of how a Christian interacts with the world. Because if you dig deep down into the very recesses of a Christian's motivation in life, you're supposed to find an instinct of grace. It's got to be at the heart. Look, by way of introduction, when I was in seminary 30 years ago, I listened to a lecture by the late theologian, Dr. R.C. Sproul, on this very chapter. And uh, to say it made a huge impression on me would be an understatement. Uh, and my comments are largely gleaned from that particular lesson. But I was struck by Dr. Sproul's statement that he said that if he was stranded on a desert island and somebody gave him one chapter of one book in the Bible that was all he could have, he'd pick Genesis 15. And the reasons for that is because it gets at the heart of the Christian means of grace. So I want to unpack it this morning in three sort of topics. I want to look at the promise, I want to look at the response, and then I want to look at the grace. 
Let's take that first one, this promise. Basically, chapter 15, God unveils to Abram two fundamental promises. He says, I'm going to make you a people, and I'm going to give you a realm. Think about this. All the way back to Adam and Eve, there was this promise that God said that the seed of the woman is going to put an end to evil. There's going to be a family that Abram is going to establish that will be ground zero for God's rescue plan of the world. But that's not all. Second of all, there's also going to be this land, this realm that God's people inhabit from which the whole of the earth was going to be blessed. Now, it's a small aside for this sermon, but a lot of you are sort of budding theologues out there. And so I thought I'd throw out this one little thought that these two promises we actually see fulfilled in the ministry of the New Testament in powerful ways. First of all, this promise for there to be a family that will one day resolve the problem is fulfilled in the church. God begins his project with Abraham, but that eventually graduates and becomes the Christian church. This is why Paul in Romans 9, 8 will call the church, us, the children of Abraham. Secondly, though, the land that he's going to give, we talked about all last week, was this idea of the kingdom of God that Jesus came to inaugurate. So basically, when God creates this relationship with man, it involves two things. I'm going to form a people, a community. And I'm also, secondly, going to establish a brand new pattern of life by which they will live in that community. We call those two entities the church and the kingdom. And it was arguably the central topic of the entirety of the New Testament. But I can tell you this, it is a key feature of understanding what it means to be a Christian in the world to make sure you get those two concepts right. You're asking me exactly how do we do that? Well, that's a whole other sermon for another time, but that was for free. You didn't have to pay for that one. That was a freebie that comes to you in the midst of the sermon. I digress. What I want to focus on this morning, though, is, is how this promise is hard for Abram. Why is it in verse 1 that the first thing out of God's mouth has to be, do not fear? Don't be afraid. I think it's simply because when God called Abram, it was a hard call. I remember one commentator who explained that you can separate these chapters in Genesis into four intense revelations of God's will for Abram's life. You go back to Genesis chapter 12 and God says, Abram, get out of the land of the Ur of Chaldees. And Abram says, where do you want me to go? And God says, wait, I'll tell you later. In Genesis 15, God says, Abram, I'm going to give you a land. And Abram's like, when? And God says, wait, I'll tell you later. For now, just wander. In Genesis 17, God says, Abram, I'm going to give you a child. And Abram says, how? And God says, wait, I'll tell you later. Finally, in Genesis 22, God says, Abram, I want you to go and I want you to kill the child. And Abram says, why? And God says, wait, I'll tell you later. In other words, God tells Abram not to be afraid because, quite frankly, he has a lot to fear. Because God is doing with Abram what he's going to do with anyone who wishes to follow him. Which is he begins by saying, I am going to have to push you out of every imaginable comfort zone that you could have in order to teach you that in the end you really can only trust me. That's all you have. Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your only trust. I am your shield. I am your reward. So here we are, children of Abraham. We have to hear this call ourselves because if you have any intention of discovering God, he is going to call you out of wherever you are. I heard one preacher giving a wonderful illustration about a lumberjack who walks into a forest 
And he sees a mother bird making a nest for herself up in the tree for her and her chicks. And all of a sudden, the lumberjack begins to work on that very tree and shakes the foundation. The mother bird looks over the edge of the tree and thinks to herself, who is this person? Who is torturing this, this, this arbitrary and capricious lumberjack? Why? Until she picks up her family and she moves on to the next tree. But before too long, the lumberjack starts working on that tree as well. Chop, chop, chop. So she moves on to the next tree and the next and the next. And the lumberjack keeps cutting down trees until such a time as the mother bird makes her nest in the rock. Why? Because the lumberjack knows something that she doesn't know. And that is that every tree is coming down. Every place that I might conceivably put my trust as a human being is coming down. So is it merciful for God to keep rocking Abram's trees? Yes. Why? Because one day the trap door of the universe is going to open up and we will either fall into the gracious arms of God himself or we will fall into infinite emptiness. And so it's not cruel for God to keep chopping down our trees. Have you heard that call? <laughs> I believe that all of our suffering in this life is God saying to us, I am your only safe place. I am all you have. Every tree is coming down. Stop building your life on those things. Do not fear. That's the promise. Secondly, though, we get the response. Abram responds by putting his faith in God. Verse 6 is a big verse in the Bible. Abram believed God, and God counted it to him as righteous, righteousness. The Apostle Paul picks up on this throughout his New Testament letters. But notice what it doesn't say. Uh, again, from R.C. Sproul, he says it doesn't say that Abram believed in God. It says Abram believed God. Uh, R.C. makes this point where he says that, that believing in God basically rises you up to the level of a demon. Even the demons believe in God. To believe God actually means to trust his promises, to build my life on what he says is true and what he thinks is true. Look, in, in a way that only Tim Keller can, I heard him explain one time that it's almost as if God is saying to Abram, hey, look, Abram, do you want to know how you can know? I know you're struggling with that, Abram. You want to know. I've given you promises. I'm trying to give you certainty. And you're like, yeah, but how can I really know? Abram, think about this. How can you know anything? How can you say that you know anything? Because you can't say that you know anything without trusting something else in order to know it. Think about that. You ever thought about that? If I say that I know something, it's because I'm trusting my mind, my ability to be rational. Maybe I'm trusting my eyes. Seeing is believing. Maybe I'm trusting my, my impeccable logic. I've thought this through, Les. Maybe you trust your friends' opinions or popular opinions. Maybe you trust the experts or, or the opinion polls. You cannot say that you know anything without trusting something else in order to know it. Some authority. So God looks at Abraham and says, look, Abraham, think about all of the other things that you could possibly trust. Look at all of the other authorities that you could swear by. Am I not far more reliable than any of them? Abram, what alternative do you have? You have none. Your life isn't even in your hands. Abraham, either I am your foundation, in which case everything is secure, no matter how crazy your circumstances get, 
or I'm not your foundation. And everything is insecure no matter how orderly your circumstances get. Those are the only two choices. But as soon as you start to talk about Abram believing God, you venture into the realm of faith. And I begin to realize people stumble over this idea of faith. Because we have to avoid the temptation when we look at the question of believing in faith. To steer clear of the idea of the quality of our faith and rather focus on the object of our faith. Look, faith is a windshield. You've heard me say this before. Faith is a windshield. It's something that's intended to be looked through, not at. If you're driving and you get fixated on your windshield, you're probably going to wreck. That's not what its purpose was. Same with faith. Faith was not meant to be preoccupied with itself. It was meant to lead me through to the thing on the other side. It led the great Welsh preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, to suggest that all you're focused on on your faith, then you've missed the whole thing. He says, in other words, faith is holding on to the faithfulness of God. Faith doesn't look at itself. Faith is never interested in itself, and it never talks about itself. This, to me, is a very good test. I always distrust people who talk about their faith. That, he says, is the characteristic of the cults. They always direct attention to themselves. You have to think positively. The emphasis is on the self. But biblical faith looks at God. It holds on to his faithfulness. There's a case to be made that every spiritual problem you are presently suffering from this morning is ultimately traced back to your not believing God. Do you know why you're worried? <laughs> because you don't trust his wisdom. Do you know why you are angry and bitter? It's because you don't trust his justice. Do you know why some of you hate yourselves? Because you don't trust his love and grace. Do we know why we don't obey and why we disobey? It's because I don't trust that God's presence is better than anything I could possibly get by disobeying. You see the difference? You better do, but you better do what you better do, right? Because if you don't, then God's going to get you. Or if you obey God, you're going to be, something's going to be missing out from you. In the end, either we put our trust in Jesus for our lives or we put our trust on ourselves. I think this is what the apostle means in Romans 14, 23, when he says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. It's either done in believing or it's done on the basis of myself. It's quite binary, is it not? So there's the promise and there's the response. And this brings me to the heart of the passage, and that is the grace. We kind of finally come to what caused Dr. Sproul to declare this as his favorite Bible chapter. And it's one that I so vividly connect with. And I've told you this before. Because when I was growing up, the question of having any confidence about me actually being a Christian was hard for me. I struggled with that a lot. Was I in? Was I out? And I think that I intuited. I don't think I could have expressed this for certain. But I think intuitively I recognized that there was a problem. And the problem was that the Bible was full of all these promises about God's faithfulness. He promised me. I can trust him. Wonderful. That's all good, right? But that wasn't my problem. My problem was not that I didn't believe that God somehow wasn't going to uphold his promises. I was okay with that. My problem was that I knew that I had not and felt inside that I almost certainly would not keep my promises. That's what I struggled with. In other words, God's promise of salvation didn't seem to do me any good 
as long as it hinged on my faithfulness. What if he gets tired of me? How many times do I fail God before he's like, I am done with you? Well, the answer that God gives to Abram's question about how can he know in verse 8 is nothing short of astounding. There's nothing like this. There's no place in Scripture that makes this this vivid. And in order to do so, you need to walk with me through a very brief little Bible study because it's important. This will reward your effort, I promise you. Do you remember a few weeks ago when we talked about the topic of certainty from the flood story in Noah? In that sermon, we focused on how it is that you and I can gain certainty in life so that we build contracts. We make contracts so that we can know what's going to happen in the future. But the way in which that contract is ratified and made certain is through what? A signature, right? In other words, if I want to get married and I want to have certainty about the future of this marriage, i got to sign. If I sort of rent a lodging, I've got to sign a lease. And of course, if I don't keep my side of the bargain, there's consequences. In other words, when you begin to ask this question in life, how can I know, how can I be certain about tomorrow? Our answer in our culture is simple, just sign on the dotted line. That's how we obtain certainty. That's because we live in a print culture. But of course, for Abram, he lived in an oral culture. So when they began to make contracts in those days, what they would do was simply this. They would publicly act out in a little ceremony of sorts the consequences of being unfaithful to the contract. Let me see where I can show you where we get the gist of this. In order to get this, you've got to investigate all the way to the end of the, almost to the end of the Old Testament in the book of Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah there records a a diatribe, if you will, from God against unfaithful Israel. In chapter 34, he says this, And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. What in the world is that talking about? Well, here's the simple application. What he's saying is, instead of signing, what the two parties would do is, is they would go get animal sacrifices. And they would, as gross as this sounds, literally hack the animal in half. You can imagine the bloody mess that that must have been. But they would lay the two pieces down beside each other, and they would ceremonially pass between the pieces... As if to say, may this happen to me if I ever break this covenant. Ah, so now we know what's going on between God and Abram. Because God wants to give Abram the certainty. He wants him to live confidently. And so in verse 12, God lays out the terrible nature of of, of Abram's, Abram's family. He lays out the good and the bad and the ugly of exactly what's coming. And what it comes along and presents to Abram as is a great, thick, dreaming darkness. In the midst of that darkness, God says, your people are going to wander. And after they wander, they'll be imprisoned for some 400 years. But in the end, there's going to be a salvation. There'll be vindication. There's going to be justice that'll be done. In short, Abram is being told some pretty deep stuff about his family's future. Of course he would be worried about his assurance of making it through or that the promise of God would stand. But then in verse 17, 
the unthinkable happens. Look what it says. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Now look, focus on that phrase, smoking fire pot and flaming torch. That Hebrew word grouping is almost exactly what we see in Exodus 19 verse 18 when the glory of God descended upon Mount Sinai. You remember this story? All the nation of Israel is gathered around Mount Sinai and all of a sudden the smoking pot and the flaming torch comes down on the mountain and it freaks everybody out. So much so they're like, "Uh, Moses, you go up there. We, We don't want to talk to him. Completely intimidating. In other words, what Abram saw was, a, was an early version of what was coming on Mount Sinai. It was God himself in his raw and fiery presence. He is the one, the very Shekinah glory that comes and he passes between the pieces. Incredible. In other words, it wasn't the presence of God alone that blew Abram away. It was the presence of God who was passing through the pieces. What? What? You're submitting yourself to this God? This is, this is really fun. In the lesson that R.C. was teaching, he lights up like a candle at this moment. Because he looks up and he says, it's as if God is saying, if I ever break my covenant to you, may my immutability suffer mutation. May my immortality experience mortality. May my infinitude experience finitude. May my power suffer powerlessness. May the impossible become possible. May my body be ripped to pieces if I don't make good on this promise. Can you imagine? The injection of confidence, seeing God do that, must have been in the heart of Abraham. But wait, there's more. Because there's something in this passage that every commentator agreed was conspicuous by its absence. Because what you don't see God saying is this, okay, Abram, cool, now it's your turn. I pass through the pieces, I'm going to keep my side, now it's time for you, here you go. He doesn't say that. But that would have been normal. A king and a vassal would have done the ceremony that exact same way. Hopefully now you can see why Dr. Sproul is convinced, and he's clearly convinced me as well, that this is the most encouraging chapter in the Bible. Because it's as if God is saying, Abram, you must get clear about this promise. Yes, I am going to keep my side of the covenant, but I'm not going to ask you to pass through the pieces as well. Because you know what? I'm going to fulfill your side of the covenant as well. I'm going to take on not only my side of maintaining the promise, but I'm also going to take on your side of all the failings that you might commit against it. I'm going to take on the curse myself. May I be cut off if I fail to fulfill both my part and yours. You can't mess this up. Please, let us never be a church that ever throws around that phrase, well, you know, God helps those who help themselves. No. Our relationship to God is not some equal partnership. God is saying, I'm going to establish a relationship between us that is thoroughly and completely of grace. So much so, Les Newsom, that even you can't mess it up. And the only way in which you can mess this up is if somehow you believe that it's on your shoulders to do it. 
All you need is need. All you need is nothing. If you bring me nothing, I'll give you everything. If you try to bring me something, you'll get nothing. Those are the terms of this relationship, Abram, and there is no other. And here's what's crazy. Abraham would have no idea what God would have to do in order to make good on that promise, would he? Because centuries later, there was another darkness that covered the land, was there not? We read while Jesus is on the cross in Matthew 27, this word. Now from the sixth hour, there was a darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The impossible happened. God's immortality did suffer mortality. His power became powerless. Why? Because he was fulfilling your side of the covenant as well as his own. That, that God was cut off, that God actually suffered that and died, is at the heart of grace. So go back to our first question. How do we actually become people that are like Mother Teresa? Where do you get the instinct that would motivate you to serve the poor and to give and to give and to give to a people who cannot help themselves? Where indeed? Teresa was empowered to do what she did only if this story is true. And that, what makes that interesting is, is that means it's available to us. Look, you're coming this morning, we hope, by invitation to a table and in the table, there'll be a body. And there'll also be blood. There's a bloody mess up here waiting for you. But the funny thing is, it's not the same kind of sacrifice, is it? It's not the same. It's continuous, but it's not the same. Jesus is no longer inviting us to sort of make sacrifice and pass through them. Why? Because he's already bored the sacrifice. So now what he invites us to is a table. Come and eat. All you, need to be, all you need to be worthy of this is to be hungry. <laughs> all you need for this to be true for you is to realize that you need it. That's the invitation. So am I becoming more gracious? Do I love to see people get what they don't deserve? Well, that's a good question. Because if not, then I may have a bigger problem than just a mere character flaw. I may have missed the very heart of the Christian message that God saves people totally by his grace. And by his grace alone. That's the instinct. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, lead us into that. Even as we partake of this, this bread and this, this juice, we pray that as it goes down inside of our bodies, that it would nourish us and make us to be holy people, to be gracious people, to delight in people getting what they don't deserve because you gave us what we don't deserve. Father, bear in us, create in us, what it is that you would have us do to take up this mission of saving the world. But you have to do it. We're convinced of that. And so as we wait for it, we long for your presence in Jesus' name. Amen.